millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A new year is full of surprises, but one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take care of orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. This episode of The Secret Library podcast is brought to you by Scrivener. Get 20% off the desktop software by using the code SECRET at literatureandlatte.com. This is episode 46. My guest this week is Guinevere de la Mer, who's a writer, editor, and lady boss. She's also the founder of the Silent Book Club, a community of book lovers with chapters in more than 30 cities around the world. She's also head of community and marketing at Storybird, a visual storytelling platform for writers, readers, and artists. Her forthcoming book, I'd Rather Be Reading, A Library of Art for Book Lovers, will be published in August 2017 by Chronicle Books. I'm really excited to have Guinevere on, both to talk about the excitement that is the Silent Book Club, as well as talking about her life creating the sort of social media platform and culture at Chronicle Books when all of that was first starting. So a little behind the scenes on that, as well as what goes into putting together um, a book as part of a collaborative project. So I know you're really going to enjoy this episode. Here we go with Guinevere. Hey, Guinevere, thanks so much for coming on. Hey, it's so good to be here. Yeah, so I first met you talking about the Silent Book Club, which I totally want to talk about. But as we talked... I think you're like a renaissance woman of books. Does that feel true? Wow. Yeah, I love that. Um, so I'm going to own that and say yes. I, I've worked in publishing for, um, for many years from all different sides of it. You know, I, I started out at 
Chronicle Books working for an actual like book publisher back in 2005, I think is when I first started. And pretty much since then, I mean, certainly for the last 10 or 11 years, I've just completely surrounded by by books, both professionally and, you know, as 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 part of my my life. I mean, I, I, I have been a lifelong reader and lover of books, but been making a living off of it for a while now, too. So was this a surprise to you that you ended up working with books? Or was this something you always dreamed of from when you were little? So I have a funny relationship with the, the sort of career path of, of being a writer. Um, I grew up kind of thinking that I was never going to be a writer. Um, I loved books and I was a huge reader. And, you know, I mean, I was one of those kids where you had to like tear me out from behind a book in order to, you know, to, to get me to even like talk to you. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, I remember I had one, one of my grandmothers was like very, very, you know, proper. And, and, you know, it was like the taught me how to like lay silverware on the table, you know, that, that generation. And I got in so much trouble because I would try and like, you know, sneak books at the dinner table. And and she was the baby, probably the first one who sort of taught me that, you know, it wasn't polite to, you know, to read in, in social gatherings, which, you know, which I've now totally like circumvented with, with silent book clubs. But, you know, when I grew up, like my, my mom was kind of a failed writer. You know, she was a creative writing major at Stanford. And then, you know, but then after she became a mom and, and had kids, you know, she just, she never really pursued it. And, and I think that that just hung over my head, you know, even if I didn't know it so much as a kid, you know, there was this, this sort of idea that I had in the back of my mind that, you know, that it was just too hard to be a writer and, and to make it work. And that, you know, that pursuing kind of certainly creative writing was, you know, was just not going to be a good and viable option because, you know, well, it, it, it hadn't worked out for my mom. And, and so therefore, you know, wasn't going to be a path for me. So I really sort of skirted the issue for, for, for many years. I mean, I majored in art history in college, which is basically writing, except you're writing about pictures. No, I know. I did the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and even, you know, as even earlier than that in, in, in high school, in junior high, you know, I, I won English awards and I, I just, I always really loved language and, and had a way with words, but, but I was just totally stubborn about it. And, you know, and I, I had, um, you know, when I went to college, one of my English professors, you know, recommended that I, that I join the newspaper and I was like, nope, not going to do that. And so, yeah, so I was just kind of like a little, a little pest about it, I guess. And, and or, or just like, lacked so much confidence that I was like, not even going to be able to, to, to handle the, the rejection. And so, so it really took me until later in life and, and I'm kind of working on the periphery and, you know, working on a lot of books before I finally got to the point where I, I said, you know, this, this is silly. I can, I can do this. And, and now I am publishing a book. I think that's really important is that there is this process of, it's almost like a cultural myth we have that making a book is really, really hard. And yes, of course, there's a lot of work going into it, but we don't have the same kind of mythos about other things that are hard, things that take a long time and require a lot of effort, like making a building or doing an operation or, you know, legal cases. Nobody's like, oh, that's too hard. You, you shouldn't even bother. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that some people sort of, you know, this, oh, I'm not good at science or chemistry, so I therefore I, I you know, I'm never going to be a doctor. I can't go to medical school. You know, so so th- there is there's a lot to be said actually for and you know, t- talking to all of the parents out there, like be careful of what you tell your very young children, you know, because you know, people I think internalize, you know, I mean, it's sort of like intern little girls who internalize like, oh, I'm not good at math. And then all of a sudden, you know, you have a whole generation of, of, of like an engineering field dominated by men because, you know, because it's so much more likely to have little girls think of themselves as, as not being good at math. And, you know, for me, I think it also took me a long time to get comfortable with even calling myself a writer because with, you know, with this idea of being a writer, so much of that I think is tied to being like, specifically a writer of fiction and even within that category like a novelist and even within that category having your novel published by you know the big five or you know like the to to actually have like arrived you know that there does sort of seem to be a very narrow category of of sort of what defines success and you know i mean i worked as a copywriter in advertising and and in marketing and and you know for years and i wouldn't call myself a writer even though like you know all i did was put words down all day long you know or even as you know you know as as um you know i worked in social media and it was like you know i mean i wrote 40,000 tweets but i'm like i'm not a writer you know, and because, you know, because, because again, it, you know, well, it wasn't, it wasn't a novel length work of fiction and therefore, you know, and I still today, you know, I mean, I, I can, I'm much more of an essayist than, than a fiction writer, you know, and, and, and I still kind of feel like I need to hedge a little bit when, when I talk about, you know, my, my profession or, or what I do. Yeah. It's, that fascinates me because I think I've even had people who have had books published by the big five say, well, I was traveling and I was in the airport and my book wasn't there in the airport store. So my brain said to me, well, that must mean this isn't it. And that we, we never get there. What was the moment? Cause you, you mentioned a minute ago that there was a moment when you thought, oh, I could do this. Was there, do you have a memory of that moment of when you felt like you could do it? Or did it just happen at the time? <laughs> when I signed my contract. Uh, no. <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't think that there was a specific moment. And I think a lot of that is, you know, is, is my own personality and, you know, and, and, and clearly get, getting to the point where I, I just sort of had enough confidence to, to, to believe in myself. But, you know, I think the other thing about, you know, about being, being a writer is that, you know, so many people and so many writers, you know, have other jobs and most people when they're, you know, when they're writing their first book, they're doing it in addition to something else. So, you know, they're, they're, they're waking up early in the morning and writing before they go to work or they're, you know, staying up late at night or, you know, they're, they're, they're marking some time. And, you know, this whole sort of notion of like a cabin in the woods where you go and, and, and write, you know, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, the, or the, or the author photo on the dust jacket of like the writer in her studio, like looking out the window. That's not the reality for, for most people. And, you know, when I think about like actors, you know, when, when I think about, you know, how many people live in Los Angeles and, you know, are bartenders or like are, you know, I mean, <laughs> we just rewatched the Netflix series Party Down. Mm. I don't know if you've 
you've seen it, but um, but it's this hilarious show that you know from a few years ago that is about like a group of caterers who are all aspiring actors, and you know, and it's and it's you know their their day job is working at this like shitty catering company, but you know, but all of them like they're they're like well you know we're actors and and um, you know and and I think that like there's so much more sort of like you know people are much more willing to be able to sort of call themselves uh, like I'm an actor but I'm like working towards becoming an actor than sort of saying like, I'm a writer before they've, they've become a writer. It's true. It's, I think that, well, it may be that the personality of someone who wants to be an actor is quite different than, than somebody who wants to be <laughs> yes. a writer. I think the people who want to be actors are probably less likely to be the, the silent book club participants. Um, yeah, it comes down to it. It's true. Like so many, there are many more of us who have like crippling self-doubt and like, <laughs> or who've been irritated at being engaged with in social settings. Like, well, let's talk about the silent book club a little bit, because as you said, like you're writing a book, I want to talk about the book, but I think it's also in the context of being a writer. There's always these other projects surrounding you. So you worked at Chronicle, you've worked on other projects, but you also have done some book related kind of good causes, which I would call Silent Book Club one of them. So <laughs> let's talk fun. about how that was formed. Sure. So, you know, so to talk about Silent Book Club, I need to go back a little bit further to talking about my job at, at Chronicle. So, um, you know, so when I first started at Chronicle in, in 2005, I was hired on as a, as a copywriter in the marketing department. And, you know, and in that role, I, you know, I wrote catalogs, uh, catalog copy, newsletters, emails, you know, web copy, um, you know, pretty much all of the marketing materials um, for for the books that that Chronicle published. Um, but, you know, through all of that, I also developed a style guide sort of for the brand voice. And, you know, and 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 in those years, so between like 2006 and 2009, um, you know, the sort of social media was just starting to to kind of get some steam behind it, you know, and and, and the first wave, you know, it's like when, when Facebook and, and Twitter sort of first came online, it took a little while for businesses to to catch on. So it wasn't really until, you know, 2008-2009 that that businesses started sort of having a brand presence online. And in 2009, I had been working at Chronicle for a few years. I had developed the brand voice and, you know, and so so I basically wrote a new job description and and pitched it to them to become kind of their first community manager slash social media strategist. And, you know, and those were sort of the wild west days of of professional social media and, you know, and also like, you know, this, this idea of a community manager, like that, that, that role, at least online community manager, like hadn't really existed before then. But essentially, you know, what it was, was it was like taking the brand, you know, and, and giving it a personality and then putting it up on the web on social media to go out and interact with, you know, with, with fans and readers and authors and, and artists. And, you know, and, and Chronicle was so well positioned for that transition because they're such a visual publisher, you know, the books are beautiful. You know, we had, you know, we had 
photography and illustrations and art and, you know, and, and, um, and then also like, you know, humor books and cats. And, you know, I mean, it was like the, the, the internet and cats like together. I mean, like, like Chronicle was so primed to really just be at the forefront of that. And, you know, and it was an area that I was, that I was interested in. Um, you know, I had gone to graduate school and, and gotten a master's in, in visual and cultural studies. And so, you know, really looking at how culture communicated through images it, you know, it all, it all just fell into place. And, you know, and so I spent the next five years, um, you know, from 2009 to 2014, building an online community for Chronicle Books. And, you know, it started with Facebook and Twitter. And then as new, you know, social networks were invented and developed, it expanded so that, you know, by the end, there was, you know, that there was Tumblr, and we had a YouTube channel and, you know, Pinterest, and I mean, and Instagram, and etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And, you know, I, I think when I finally tapped out was like, okay, I can't, I, there's just, there's so just many too many. On. I can't no back. more. I <laughs> know, just stop. So, um, <laughs> But over the course of those five years, um, you know, it was really fascinating to watch the, the sort of realm of online communities start out. They had much more in common with a typical community. It was groups of people who were joined together by a shared interest or passion for a particular topic. And, you know, and it was a two way conversation where, you know, they would be talking to us and we would be talking to them. And, you know, and, you know, you would meet, you would make friends on Twitter and, you know, and, and you would actually have conversations with people. And, and those early days, um, you know, it, it felt very like it was just it was so friendly and chummy and nice and and, you know, and and really fun and also meaningful. You know, I mean, it was like there was a lot of trust that we established um, or, you know, that, that I worked to establish, um, you know, as a brand, you know, communicating with, you know, with our readers. And then over the years, you know, as, as, as a few years went by and this became sort of a bigger and bigger thing and the audiences got larger and larger and the social networks all of a sudden realized, well, not all of a sudden, but, you know, the social networks realized that they needed to monetize advertising and marketing and, you know, sort of the business side of things really became, you know, much more intrusive and apparent. And, you know, I mean, Facebook was a really good example of, you know, of, you know, and, and a lot of companies were in the same position that we were in where you had spent years building up, you know, a huge following of, of people that, you know, that you had really worked hard to engage with. And then, you know, and then Facebook, you know, essentially got to a size where they began building their algorithms to limit the number of, of, of people who were seeing your posts and, and then, you know, sort of creating a problem that they then solved through monetization. So you could sponsor a post and then get it back in front of the people who had been, you know, seeing everything a year earlier for free. And so, so there was just sort of a, a shift that took place where, um, you know, where online communities went from, from being, you know, these very sort of trusted networks of, of friends to just another marketing platform. And, and that was a hard transition to, to be in working on the part of, of the company and sort of feeling like, almost like I had sort of like somehow tricked all of these people to feeling like they were just like, we we're all hanging out at a party. And now like all of a sudden we're going to start selling you a bunch of shit. Like and we're you know. bringing out the Tupperware. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And a lot of, you know, it's funny cause I have, I have a lot of friends who were, you know, sort of 
early, early community managers who all started burning out right around the same time, you know, like about like five years. And I think also a lot of it was just the, the fatigue from being online all the time you know, for, for, for that many years and, and trying to keep up with how fast that world was, was changing. That for me, I just, I, it got to the point where, where I, I decided I needed to kind of step away. And so, um, yeah, when it was like, oh my God, Snapchat, like I am too old for this <laughs> shit. <laughs> I still don't understand Snapchat. We've tried okay. to get my stepdaughter to explain it to us. And we're like, yeah, we get how it works. We just don't get why we would want to do it. I yeah, yeah, I I hear you and I feel you and yeah, every every I feel like with with Snapchat I have these moments where it's like eight months will go by and then I'll be like oh yeah and then I'll sort of open it up and like take a couple like go see what the selfie filters are that day and then forget it about it again for for eight months but clearly I'm not the target demographic um, no. for that yeah I. I think the selfie filters is the only thing I would do and then put them on Instagram instead. <laughs> yeah, no, and I still can't figure, you know, it's like I don't, if I open it up and every time I open it up, I can't remember how it works. So I'm right. like, wait, do I, do I have friends on here? Like have people posted on here? I can't, I can't tell. Where do I go? But community, like, you know, I, I, so when I left Chronicle, I was really missing those sort of those early days and I was really feeling a lot of internet fatigue, you know, and so so that was when I, I, ha I had this idea um, and it was, you know, a, a, one of my Silent Book Club co-founders and sort of the, 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 the origin story was, you know, we were, we were out drinking wine one night and, um, and I was complaining about this book club that I had to finish the book for and I didn't like the book and I didn't want to finish it, but I felt like I needed to have something smart to say and, you know, and it just, it felt like homework. And, you know, and I'm like, I'm a 40 year old lady. Like, I don't have time for homework anymore. You know, I don't want to do this. Uh, and, and so, you know, so, so what I said was like, you know, I just, I want a book club where basically like you can just show up and bring whatever book you're reading at the time. You can, you know, drink wine and know what, you know, there's going to be no discussion guides. You don't have to say anything insightful. You know, you can basically just like sit in a bar and read your book and drink and like, and like, and God forbid, like, you know, like you don't have to clean your house or prepare like, you know, a Pinterest worthy platter of appetizers to share with all of your ladies like no and flowers like, and I know like I just I want to go to a bar and drink and read and my friend Laura was like yes let's do that I am so down and you know and so that's kind of where the idea of silent book club came from you know so the silent was really not so much like you know you have to be absolutely dead silent and this happens in some sort of like monastic setting. It was more like there's no expectation to have a prescribed discussion about the book. And so we started doing it just, so, you know, first it was just amongst ourselves and then we, you know, we both invited some friends and it was really casual. Um, but, you know, but as the, you know, as the idea evolved and as these, these get togethers sort of evolved, what we realized is that, you know, we were sort of getting back to the roots of community. And, and Laura also came from a community background, um, community management background, I should say. So, um, you know, so we had a lot of sort of professional experience in, in common, you know, and what we really loved about it was that, um, you know, it was, it was actually like 
real life social networking. You know, I mean, you actually got together and you were hanging out with people and nobody was on their phones because we all had books instead. And so it sort of, you know, took the internet out of the equation. And that just felt like we all really needed that. And it it started to become something that we really sort of looked forward to and craved and put on the calendar to actually like give ourselves permission to just like, you know, tune out for a couple of hours and, and hang out with people face to face and, and read, you know, and I think that that, that, that's a piece of the sort of, you know, that that's a social part of, of, of social networks that, that is just totally lacking and that, that people are sort of now realizing is, is actually really important. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, also, you know, it's much nicer to have a real glass of wine than to send someone a virtual glass of wine, you know, <laughs> like you could do. But I think the other thing I love about it is that I have definitely read in bars many times myself, but people kind of look at it as, at least the people who felt the need to come up and talk to me about what I was doing, that like, oh, why aren't you talking to anybody? Or why are you just sitting there reading a book? Or are you waiting for somebody? Or, you know, what are you doing here with a book? And I was like, what's wrong? What's wrong with sitting over the book? It's the most luxurious thing I can imagine. Yes. I mean, I could. And one of the things that really caught us by surprise was like how like like people could not deal with like what we were doing, you know, especially when it was like, you know, when it was just the two of us, we would go and, you know, there's a little we both we happen to live on the same street in the neighborhood. And in between our houses, there's like this little French bistro and, you know, it's sort of a restaurant and then there's a bar. And we would go and we would sit at the bar and we would order, you know, like food or wine or whatever. And then and then we would both bring out our books and we would start reading and people would look at us like we were crazy or straight up, like come up and ask us like what we were doing. And and yeah, it was like they, they could not figure out, like, why on earth would we want to go and like hang out and not talk to each other? And, you know, and that always made me want to just sort of like like take the person by the shoulders and turn them around and point out all of the other couples in the restaurant that were sitting there looking at their phones and not talking to each other. Because you go into any sort of like, you know, cafe or bar or like, I mean, sadly, even like dinner tables. And you have these people that like, they're not talking to each other. You know, they're, they're looking at their phones and they're not engaging at all. And, you know, and, and it's the exact same action, but we culturally have become so desensitized to, you know, like the weirdness of staring at an object in your hand instead of making eye contact with the person across the table that people don't notice that or even like, you know, that, that, that doesn't trigger a signal of anything being odd when it's a phone. But when you replace that device with a book, suddenly it calls attention to that sort of antisocial na- nature of being in proximity to somebody and not engaging with them. It reminds me of, and maybe you'll have seen this also, but there were a series of I don't know if they're paintings or drawings or something, but someone, I'm going to have to dig this up and I'm going to describe this very badly. They felt like pieces of art that were people in everyday situations that were looking at phones, but the phones had been erased in the image. So you see these people walking down the street and, and so they're in that kind of looking at the phone pose, but there's no phone there. And you see how weird it is again, when the, when the phone has been removed, it changes the context. 
Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, like, the, I, yeah, I think I... I do think I recall it was like, you know, an, an art project that someone did. And there's, yeah, like two people lying in bed and like staring yeah, at their, their, hand their hands. With their hand up in that weird yeah. claw. Yeah. I'm going to look yeah. for it and put it in the show notes. I'll find some image like this so that everyone can see what we're talking about. But I'm sure you can picture it in your head, probably. Yeah, yeah. And it was almost always men, you know, who would oh, sort of yeah, like... Of course always like you know be like what are you two pretty ladies doing like you know reading books and it's just like you want to replace it with a good red-blooded man yeah Yeah. (laughs) but um you know but but then so but we took that and then like sort of extrapolated that out to like well god what happens when we essentially fill up this entire bar with people who are reading books and you know and that has been so fun and such a trip. You know, there was one night when we had a, there was one silent book club meetup that, that just still makes me laugh, but we were, we were at the palace hotel in downtown San Francisco, which is this like beautiful sort of old, like, you know, there's chandeliers hanging from the ceiling and a big sort of, you know, glass like foyer. I mean, it's just, it's, it's when you think of fancy hotel, this, this is what, what comes to mind. And, and we had like this whole sort of lounge filled up with readers and they had, they happened to have like, like a live music that night, but it was just like a guy and a guitar. And, and he was like beside himself because, you know, nobody was like paying attention to him. Like, I mean, we were like listening to him and he was like, you know, he was like doing John Mayer kind of type songs. Oh yeah. You know, and, and, but everybody was there and having, you know, quite a nice time reading and, and drinking. And like, he's like making cracks into the microphone in between tracks about like, you know, like basically like, you know, what are you nerds all like doing out here? And, and it was like, oh my God, like you are so outnumbered. You know, there were probably like 30 people, 30 or 40 people in, in, in the lounge, like at Silent Book Club. And, and then like this one lone, like singer songwriter guy. And, you know, at one point he was like, you know, like, haven't you heard of the internet? And we were like, yeah, that's That's why we're doing this. (laughs) It was such a disconnect and, you know, but I could see how, you know, being a musician like that would be, you know, maybe disconcerting to have people reading instead of like, you know, watching you wrapped but you know but the woman who's there on on you know other months like who who sits and plays at the piano quietly by herself like I mean she loves us and we love her she's probably got a book propped up where the music Uh, is so she can read (laughs) as she's playing oh my god she's amazing she goes from like you know like she'll like play like Mozart and then she'll do an instrumental cover of like Adele or I mean it just like she's good we like her a lot Yeah, she sounds sounds like she gets it. (laughs) Totally. Let's pause and take a moment to talk about the show's sponsor, Scrivener. One of the things about Scrivener, I think that we've been talking about ever since they've started sponsoring the show, is all of the incredible amount of resources, templates, options, ability to use Scrivener in many different ways. But I want to say to the person who's a little fearful about trying new software that you don't need to worry that you won't be able to figure it out. First of all, it's very intuitive to get started and they have both interactive tutorials as well as a user manual. And in addition to that, there's even video tutorials. So if you're a nervous software user, you're not gonna have a problem getting started and they have really great support. So I encourage you to check it out if you haven't already at literatureandlatte.com where you can get 20% off the desktop software by using the code SECRET. Okay, I hope you have fun with that. And now let's get back to Guinevere. 
Well, you and then you've expanded to other cities. You're not just in San Francisco anymore. Like you're in LA. I'm going to start a little meetup, which I will share with people here. But um, but yeah, you're in a bunch of cities now. We are now in more than 30 cities around so the world. Good. It's crazy. Yeah, it's it's amazing. So um, you know, so so we started out in San Francisco with yep, just a couple of friends, and um, you know, and sort of our our third co-founder. Her name is Kristen. She had been living in San Francisco sort of for a hot minute for for work and then moved back to Brooklyn where she where she was based. Perfect. And when she, <laughs> yeah. so when she moved back to Brooklyn, she took Silent Book Club with her and we started doing bi-coastal meetups where we would schedule it for the same night and then, you know, and then we would like, you know, we would sort of like do some like simul Instagramming of like, you know, we're reading books on both sides of the country. Yay. And, and that was really the seed of the idea for, you know, for, for sort of making it more of this, this movement and, and, you know, and, and having people be able to sort of start up their, their, their clubs wherever they were. And, you know, Laura and I both coming from community backgrounds, like we felt very strongly and, you know, and, and still do that, you know, that this is something that we really wanted to let the community drive and run with, you know, we, you know, so, so what we created, we sort of, you know, we, we built up a website and, you know, and set up a framework so that people can sort of, you know, come to the website and understand what Silent Book Club is. Um, and then we help, you know, we walk them through the steps of how to start one up on their own and, and really how to make it their own. So, you know, so, so we have a, you know, sort of a page that's how to start your Silent Book Club that gives you, you know, sort of, like a rough layout of of how an event works and what it looks like and the different types of venues that work well and you know and some venues that don't you know I mean like sports bars are probably not going to be a great place to you know to host it because they're loud and boisterous and and dark and you know especially on Monday nights when you have football like that's just you know not a crowd that's going to be really conducive that sounds horrible it really does yeah But, you know, but we also, you know, really wanted to give people the flexibility to to make it their own. So, you know, I mean, we started out drinking in bars, but, you know, shortly thereafter, a friend of ours, you know, up in Seattle wanted to wanted to host a group, but she had a lot of friends who were recovering alcoholics. And so, you know, didn't want alcohol to be a part of it. And so she hosted, you know, her meetup at like this, like, old timey ice cream soda fountain sort of shop, which was like, I want to go drink milkshakes and read books. Yes, that please. Sounds so you know? good. Yeah, and like you know, and then there's a woman now who is in Kuala Lumpur, like in Malaysia, and she hosts her silent book club at this like fancy hot dog joint. So they have like brats and books, and you know, and and now we have public libraries that have added silent book club into their event planning. Um, you know, there there are bookstores like um, Changing Hands Bookstore in um, at their Phoenix location. They have um, they have a bar that's attached to the book store, which is like, why doesn't every city have this? Please, if you're listening to this, like, buy a bookstore and a bar and put them together, please. Put them next to each other. It's brilliant. Yes. So they started up a silent book club and they have been going strong now for like six months. Um, and, you know, so we have more. So, you know, so so we have more and more sort of partners coming in and 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 just kind of and making silent book club their own. And, and that is, you know, that that's 
completely how this has grown has been by, you know, word of mouth and and also just 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 really sort of handing it over and, and letting people sort of take it and make it their own. Um, and that's always, you know, everybody is a volunteer and um, you know, none of us are are really making money off of this. It's, 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 you know, my, my, my secret dream is that, you know, silent book club is, is just like a movement that, you know, where, where once a month, like every bar in San Francisco would be filled with people reading books and instead of phones. I think, I think we can do it. I think we can do it. Yeah. We're going to do it in LA too. I think, I mean, some people might be reading scripts, but I think, I think we can make it happen down here too. Well, you know, that's the other thing, too, is that I don't really care what people read, you know, or how people read. You know, we have like so many times on, you know, we'll we'll post an event and there'll be someone who will comment and be like, oh, is it okay if I bring like an e-reader? Like, you know, because there's this there's also this whole idea kind of in, you know, in sort of bookish circles that like e-readers are bad and, you know, print is the only thing. And and like I personally love print books, but like, I'm not going to judge someone from like, you know, for reading on, on a Kindle or even on an iPad or like, or even on your phone, you know what? Like I have been stuck in line at the post office and pulled up my Kindle app and like, you know, picked up where I left off. And I love that like my phone can sync to my e-rater and, um, you know, so we're, we're all about like no, no shaming and no shushing either. You know I mean? Silent, but <laughs> like the silent part like can sometimes give the wrong impression. Um, and there, there are other silent reading parties that take place, you know, that some people hold where like they are super strict about like, like you have to sort of like, you know, like point to the drink on the menu when the waiter comes by, cause you're not allowed to talk. And I'm like, ah, screw that. Like, you know, I mean, it's, it's like, again, like we were, we are not children in a library. Come on. <laughs> like, so no shushing, no shaming. Yeah, and no having to hide your book under the table like you did when you were little. <laughs> yes, yes, Grandma, I'm sorry, but I can be social and also read. <laughs> I know, you've proved it. So I want to talk about your book because yeah. you have a book coming out in August, which is really exciting. And then you've also published in a few anthologies. So let's talk about your book and then let's talk about the process of getting to your book. Yeah, sure. So my book is, it's, it's so meta. It's called I'd Rather Be Reading. Yes, uh, (laughs) always true. And it's, it's a, it's a library of, of, you know, essays and artwork about the joy of reading. So, you know, it's sort of, it's a compendium of, um, you know, of work by uh, about 60 artists, uh, illustrators, photographers, fine artists, and, you know, and all of them are just sort of celebrating readers and books. Um, And then it also includes four essays, um, one by me. And then um, there's an essay by Gretchen Rubin, who's the author of The Happiness Project. And and she has like, you know, basically like a list of of how to get more reading done. So if you don't feel like you're reading enough, Gretchen has some tips for how to read even more. Then there's also an essay by a writer named Maura Kelly. And she writes, um, it's called A Slow Books Manifesto. And it's, it's essentially a call for everyone to just like slow down and pick up the classics and, and read, you know, so she sort of, it's, 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 um, Pache Michael Pollan, you know, with, with the slow food movement and, and, you know, putting that into the context of, of the world would be a better place if we all just kind of like read more and slowed down. 
Um, and then the last contributor is Ann Patchett, who oh, um, the best. Yeah, who uh, you know, this is a list of twenty-five of of her favorite books. So you know, so there's you know some suggestions of of kind of you know if you love to read, here's what Ann Patchett recommends you you read next. And so so yeah, and it's just so it's a great little you know it's, it's essentially one of those things that is going to be like the gift that you buy your your bookworm friend. I will accept this as a gift for anyone who's <laughs> listening. <laughs> yeah, it's it's quite close to my birthday when it comes out, actually. Mine too. Oh, when is yours? Mine's August seventh. No, oh, mine's August thirtieth. All right. I was well, like, so... if we had the same birthday, I was going to freak out. Oh, but we're not even the same sign. No, because I'm a Leo, yeah, but you're I'm a Virgo. On... My sister is like the twenty. Oh God! Oh, she's going to kill me. Delete this. Twenty <laughs> sixth. <laughs> my sister is the twenty sixth. So she's a Virgo. <laughs> yeah. So um, how was it like you've been a contributor in other anthologies, but then this was your project. So how, how was the process? Like, let's just talk about anthologies and how they come together. Sure. So, um, so you're right. So in the past, I contributed an essay to, um, to a book called the who, the what, and the when, which was, um, an anthology of, of essays and illustrations about sort of like the sidekicks of, of history. So, you know, you take like someone like Nabokov and then the essay in the book is actually not about Nabokov, but about his wife who pretty much like made all of his books pop, uh, possible or like Andy Warhol's mother, who, you know, many people may not have known that he like lived with his mother, you know, until he was, I don't know, in his thirties or something. And, and that she, again, like, you know, essentially like made much of his art possible. And so, um, a whole collection of, of really cool sort of stories that you might not have heard of, you know, like not about George Washington, but about the guy who made George Washington's wooden teeth. Um, <laughs> so, um, and the, the way that I got involved in, in that book, I mean, a lot of it was because I worked at Chronicle Books. And so I had, you know, I had kind of inside access to projects because I knew the editors, um, because, you know, I, you know, I, I, I did some freelance writing on the side and they knew that I was a writer. Um, and so they put me in touch, you know, when there was essentially, you know, a call for, you know, for essayists or, or, a, 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 like for this book in particular, like the, the artist came to Chronicle and, and specifically to the editor and said, you know, I want to put together, I want to put together this, this book, this project, like, you know, I, I, I can sort of do the art side of it. I need help with the, the words side of it. And then, you know, and then the editor sort of helped, helped them, um, you know, gather up sort of this, this wider you know, cadre of writers. And so, um, you know, so that, that was how, kind of how I, how I first started. And, and what was really nice about that is that it got rid of kind of that, that, imposter syndrome that that I was feeling about like well I wasn't a real writer because I was just a copywriter um you know once I actually you know once I I saw my essay you know in a book and my name was actually like in a table of contents and you know and and I mean it's like on on google books like it'll come up and and it'll be like oh you know like my name is attached to words in a real book like this is this is a thing I I can do this um that that was really helpful but unfortunately for your listeners that situation was kind of a like you know a who you know situation um but I think that, you know, I mean, with 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 so many things in the world, like it's it it really is. And especially, you know, I, I do have to give it to things like Facebook in the way that it 
can connect people and projects and things that you're working on that, you know, I mean, there, there've been so many different instances where, you know, I, I have, I've, I'm friends with, with other creatives who are sort of looking for, you know, looking for somebody who can help them here or there. And I've put them in touch with, with somebody else. And so, you know, I, so I think that, that networking is like, you know, as, as with anything, even as a writer, networking is a big part of it. And, you know, certainly when you're starting out too, um, you know, you have kind of the traditional path that many people take with, with, you know, pitching or, you know, or, or trying to sort of like, like send, you know, send queries out or, you know, the more, you know, the sort of like old, old fashioned writer's market way of doing things. And then you also have the reality of, of the sort of the internet world that we live in, where it's like, you know, you are following someone on Twitter and you become friends and you know each other back and forth and then they're working on something and they know that you're, you know, an expert or you know a lot about that and they start talking to you and then a collaboration evolves from that. Um, you know, that, that happens more and more. Yeah, I think so. And just being willing to be open to a relationship around writing, I think is really important. I mean, an example being just starting this show in a way, which is an anthology of sorts, was I worked in a bookstore and I knew other people who love books. And that was 2007 to 2009. And so everybody who worked there, we've all moved on. And a lot of people are in literature. So you can even hang around your your favorite bookstore, get to know everybody there. And who knows what you'll be able to, to build connecting with or going to silent book club. I mean, everybody there likes books and is probably going to be on the same page too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, it's like, I, I, I got to know a lot of agents like, you know, like on Twitter and the, the, the great, the other thing that I love about, you know, I, I love the online book community, like book people are awesome. And, you know, and sometimes it can feel like a small and clicky world, but, you know, on the other hand, like it's also like just an incredibly passionate and engaged group. And, you know, and, and yes, like maybe there are a few like big names that everybody wants to be friends with, and I'm not going to name any names here, but you know, but like, you know, you have these sort of like, like big personalities as you would have in any, you know, in any sort of like, circle, social circle. Um, but there are so many more people who just love books and who love talking about them. And so, you know, whether it's like super targeted, like on Litzy or, you know, or more of just a broad general, like, you know, like the, the world of Twitter and books or, or even just like, you know, Facebook and your friends or, you know, I mean, or like the bookstagram feed on, on Instagram, you know, there are so many book bloggers and there are so many, you know, just, just, like both people who work in the book industry and then people who love books, like it's, it's a really nice group of people and I love working with them. And, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, why, why it's been so fun to do silent book club is because, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm just like, I'm able to keep talking to these people that, that I've you know, built these relationships with like over years. Yeah, absolutely. It is. It's, People who love the same thing you love, I mean, you already, like you said at the beginning, you already have something in common to build a relationship on. So opening up to that, I think, can only can only build good things. Yes. So here's another idea that um, 
I don't know if I'm going to ever get around to doing it, but but somebody should. And actually, Housing Works Books in New York kind of did 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 a, a version of this of basically like speed dating, but with books. So, you know, so like you go and instead of like, you know, sitting down and having a five minute conversation, like everybody brings a book and then you like sit down and you put the book down and you have your conversation based on like what it is that, that you love to read. And it's like the ultimate icebreaker because, you know, like you can learn so much about somebody just, you know, based on what they're reading or what they love or what they hate. And, you know, and, and to be able to like go do a round of like, you know, go sit around the table and talk to like 10 different people about, about their books, like, and like not even dating, like for romance, like I would love to do like book speed dating for friends, you know, like where you could just like go and, and, and find buddies. Like that seems like it could be really fun, but I, I, I don't know. I can't figure out the logistics of, of organizing those events on my own. So now that I'm, seems I'm, you're already, you've already got an event, but yeah, I see, I do see the appeal of that. Or even like, do you want to collaborate? Like entrepreneurs are people who are looking to collaborate. And then you have one of these with a book and be like, that person likes Anne of Green Gables. I can get with her or yeah. <laughs> whatever it is, you know, that you're into or, Oh, that person likes that book. I don't know. I don't know if we're going to have the same vision. Right. It's uh <laughs> it can be, I'm not going to name names, but you know, I mean, there are all those books where you're just like, I just didn't get it. I just didn't get that book. Right. right. Or where you're like, I hate, there are, you know, it's like, I, I have this handful of books that I keep in my back pocket that I hate so much. And, and I, I totally use that word like forcefully and strongly. And I think it's when it's like a deal breaker, right? If I hear, if I hear somebody talking about how much they loved, like, you know, one of these books, I'm like, we are not friends. <laughs> nope, we don't understand each other. We have different visions. It's not, it's not it. Well, I am so excited that we got to talk about all of this and that we will keep everyone posted about when your book comes out, because it seems like you just made it for everybody listening to the show. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. It's been so fun. And it's, you know, it's, it's, I think, you know, such a big part of it is just, is really just having a love of something that doesn't get old. You know, I mean, I, I've loved books forever. And, and it's, it's, it's not something, it doesn't feel like a job when I'm doing it. And I mean, writing is hard, sitting down and writing and, you know, and now like, I mean, now I do call myself a writer and, you know, and I, I, I'm a freelance writer and I, you know, I write for, for various blogs and, you know, and I have deadlines and there's articles and, and it's, you know, it, it can be hard and, you know, and I do have other ideas in the back of my head for the next project and, um, you know, but, but there's nothing hard about reading books and there's nothing hard about talking about books. And, and that's why I love it so much. No, it's true. Um, and it's always a joy to talk about, about books with someone who feels the same way. Thank you. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.